0: So at this time so close to the winter solstice and this uh, archetypal period of this meeting of the deepest darkness and the coming of the light, I want to talk about and explore the teaching which is, I think, right at the core of our practice. And this is the teaching of uh, dukkha, usually translated as suffering, and the ending of dukkha, or suffering. So the nature of suffering, or dukkha, and how that dukkha ends. I want to start by framing this particular exploration by uh, reflecting on the fact that we are engaged in uh, insight meditation. Insight is a translation of vipassana. And we may often wonder uh, what kind of insights are there How do I know when there's an insight? And will I leave the retreat with enough insights? (laughs) Or do I need to keep coming back for more insight? Uh, And what is insight after all? Um, I like the very simple phrasing by uh, an English insight meditation teacher, Rob Rubeya, he speaks about insight as seeing that frees. Or we could say understanding which frees is liberatory. And we can point to a few types of insight that we have. We have with our mindfulness practice, we can see that which is occurring in the present moment. We can know what's happening. We can start to be able to see more carefully the constituents of experience, be able to be mindful of the body, of sensations, of the breath, the different senses. We can also start to see the patterns of experience. We can see our own personal patterns, we can see Um, what leads us to react, what leads us to have difficulty. We can also develop insight based on following uh, certain guiding principles or teaching. So we can look to see where is there... uh, a tendency for compulsive grasping, for compulsive pushing away. And we can look there. So a lot of mindfulness is looking at whatever appears in experience, but some of it is actually looking in a particular place. So it would be um, not a complete instruction to say, just be mindful, okay? Come back in a year, tell me what you found. <laughs> Rather, we'd want to say, be mindful in this way. So it's interesting. The Buddha gives four foundations of mindfulness. He doesn't just say, be mindful. He says, be mindful of these constituents of experience. And then in the fourth foundation, he says, be mindful and look at the patterns. Be mindful of the constituents that seem to be there and look like self. Be aware of the uh, different elements of experience. Be aware of suffering and the roots of suffering and so forth. I'm going to bring in that kind of uh, process of inquiry that really fills out the mindfulness that we've developed already. So far we've been primarily looking at the constituents of experience But then it's also very crucial to look at the larger patterns of experience and to inquire and to to say, oh, um, look, there's reactivity. Let me just feel what that's like in the body. And it brings in a quality of inquiry which can actually bring tremendous amount of interest and curiosity and is wonderful for daily life. Has anyone ever had your meditation at home or sometimes here just feel like kind of calm kind of peaceful, kind of relaxed, kind of sleepy. And that kind of meditation is in need of inquiry. (laughs) a need of developing curiosity and interest. And so I hope that some of what I'll say will develop interest in even in uh, Dukkha, her reactivity. Now, another aspect of the emphasis on insight is important. It's that actually, you know, the answer to the question, what is the root of human suffering, of um, confusion, even of violence, is taken to be ignorance. It's a model that we find in Many of the Asian traditions, we also find it in the Western traditions, um, going back to the Greeks, you can find it with Plato. And that sense that the core problems are not those, as we often hear, of evil. But that, um, it's, a deep, it's a deep question, but that uh, some way that we don't know ourselves is the root problem. There's a great teacher and writer from the eighth century in India named Shantideva. He says, "This world is beset with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves." And so it's a very, it's a very um, important emphasis, you know. And I think. Western culture is generally split between those who focus on ignorance and say that the, the deep meaning of human life both uh, personally and in an evolutionary sense is learning. It's a beautiful model, isn't it? You know, Our quest is to keep learning both as individuals and as a culture and the other side is more that the problem is evil. And I'm not going to go through that one but it's important just to know that we're here, the, the whole principle of insight practice rests on that understanding, certainly the understanding of the Buddha, which means essentially that the response to difficulty or suffering or even to really horrible stuff is actually compassion and the, the opening of the heart Um, the poet Rumi talked about this quality of ignorance in a very, very interesting way. He says this in a poem. All day I think about it, then at night I say it. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. <laughs> one one sense of ignorance. <laughs> My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that. And I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent, sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? (laughs) Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could take one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. (laughs) The poet Blake said it another way. He said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to humans as it is, infinite. For humans have closed themselves up till they, they see all things through narrow chinks of their cavern. So as we practice insight meditation, as we develop more insight, we, in a way, cut through that ignorance and it's helpful to see, this is, this is a kind of a map, that there are, th- I think, three broad forms of ignorance. And this is really, I think, um, for, for me, a helpful map of our times. First, there's a kind of personal ignorance that we can cut through. And so some of the insights we have uh, can be, as we meditate, can be about unresolved issues in our lives, about what should I do, uh, we can see something, we can have some insight into a problem or an issue, and that's one level of personal insight. And we can also, as we go more deeply, we can see our patterns. We can see our habits. We can see our conditioning. We can see more and more into the uh, habit structure of our being, our patterns. How do I react when something is difficult? What, how do I react when something is wonderful? Um, What are my main patterns uh, of um, maybe that are linked with my own suffering? And as we go deeper, we can see some of the roots of those patterns and keep going deeper into them. And there's a, a whole dimension of our practice where we can see our patterns, our habits, and uh, start to see even what's beneath them. Some of the old conditioning that all of us have that may go back in time a long way. You know, and so for me, in my initial practice, um, I saw that I had a planning mind. I was a student, and I w- when I was first practicing, I would, um, I would sit and I would have a report due in three days. I would sit in, out, and then I would do some planning work on the report, in, out. And I would find like I might go there like, I don't know, 30 times in 45 minutes, right? <laughs> and, and if you had asked me before I began practice, do you plan a lot? I would have said, well, usual amount. But in actuality, I come from a a family of planners. And I mentioned in a small group that my sister has an advanced degree in planning. And she makes her living from planning. (laughs) Uh, Health planning. Some of you may be served by her. She's an administrator for Kaiser in Oakland. (laughs) And, you know, in my family, when we would have family get-togethers, often before we even said hello and asked how we were doing, we would plan when we were going to get together again. <laughs> so, conditioning is there, right? And so, but I didn't know it. So, that was, that's kind of an initial level we see into that. And as we go deeper, we see into other levels, another level that, ha- that took some time to see. At a certain point, when my mind got quite still, this was probably 10 years into my practice, I saw more clearly that um, I was actually afraid of the present moment. And I wanted to, con- there, was, there was a control was a strategy. Totally gone now, but once it was. <laughs> once it was an issue. <laughs> And and I, I but I could feel like when my my mind got quiet I could see that pattern of wanting to kind of reach out, and not be quite so comfortable just to rest in the present moment. That's that's that wasn't so easy to sit with and see. But we open to these these deeper patterns, you know. Um, some of them personal. We also open to social conditioning. You know, sometimes that's harder. Sometimes that actually takes a special inquiry, to really see social conditioning or it maybe takes being whatever part of a um, women's group or looking into gender or looking into race you know i've been part of uh several groups for people uh, who are quote unquote white looking into the conditioning around race and whiteness you know and privilege and it's a very you know it's uh not an inquiry which typically happens by itself sometimes we have to actually make that inquiry and take steps to, to go there with some of these dimensions of conditioning. And a lot of the social conditioning is rather hidden, you know, but it's really, I think, to be free, we have to work with that. And then there's the universal conditioning, and this is actually the main emphasis historically of Buddhist practice, uh, which is to uh, see into the universal patterns connected with us being caught and becoming free. And there's a teaching called the teaching of the three characteristics, which point to three fundamental qualities of experience which we don't see accurately. One is impermanence, this way that we tend not to see change happening. Some of it's because of our level of concentration. We need actually quite a a depth of concentration to notice more carefully the rapidity of change and to see change on more subtle levels. Some of it's because we're so caught with language. The philosopher uh, Wittgenstein says we're bewitched by language and we buy into concepts. Concepts suggest a world where where objects are permanent, they're solid, they're discrete and that's very useful in daily life, right? And pragmatically. But um, actually when we look carefully, not so accurate, (laughs) right? And it makes us think things are more permanent than they are because we live in so much in a world of concepts. And the second characteristic that which we look at is that of dukkha or suffering that we come to understand suffering. That's what I'm going to focus on, really, for the rest of the talk and look at that more, that second aspect. The third aspect is that of anatta, or usually translated as not-self. And John explored that um, quite a bit last night. This often confusing understanding that we are not separate selves. We can interpret in in different ways. Um, In terms of practice, it can really, I I won't say much about this, but just to say in terms of practice, it can be helpful to look for where there's a sense of self that's really what I call thick, you know, where the self gets really big, you know, like with self judgment or self consciousness or um, uh, it could be blame or uh, it could be positive. It could be, wow, that was a cool meditation or I hope other people are watching how mindful I am in my walking meditation. <laughs> Maybe I should walk a little more slowly so they really track that. <laughs> and the other, another way to work with that sense of not-self is to tune in when there's more of a sense of flow and just experience happening without a sense of me or mine. Sometimes we can see that, oh, there's just a thought, just an emotion, you know, just body sensations, just a sound and so forth happening one after another. We can sometimes tune into that for a while. Dukkha, again, translated typically as uh, suffering. I'm going to suggest a different way to translate it. Um, We probably know from this core teaching of the Four Noble Truths from the Buddha, which was the teaching which was the fruit, really, uh, of his awakening, or was the fruit, maybe to say it, it was his first teaching that he gave after awakening. And we... um, we go We go back to it. It's really the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, that is the truth that there is dukkha. For now, I'll call it suffering. Dukkha, her suffering. That there's a core cause of dukkha, her suffering, which is in grasping. That there is also the possibility of freedom and that there's a practical path to come to freedom and understand and transform dukkha. That's, those are the Four Noble Truths. And it's really at the center of the Buddhist teachings and and really of um, this tradition. I think you can find something very much like it in other traditions as well. Um, It it has a certain common sense quality. It was actually modeled in part at the time of the Buddha after the model of medical um, diagnosis and treatment. Sort of the model, model of medical treatment. It was, what's the problem? What's the cause of the problem? What's the solution? And how do we get there? It's quite commonsensical, right? Um, and it's a, very, it's a very central teaching. I can remember once I was, um, uh, I and uh, my friend and colleague Diana Winston were asked to come to New Mexico to uh, help a newly forming community develop and just be kind of witnesses for the community. And so we went there and we um, were just observers, but there, was, uh, there were people in the community from different traditions and uh, they were starting to have some conflicts. What do we do? And when they asked, what's really the core for all the different traditions, it came back to the Four Noble Truths. And so that was actually a way to, to connect and bridge Now, I'd like to um, translate uh, dukkha more as reactivity. And I want to talk about dukkha as reactivity, what it is, and then suggest uh, a number of ways to work with reactivity. And then at the end of the talk, spend a little bit of time going into more depth on non-reactivity, which is really what we mean by freedom. Um, but I like the translation of dukkha as reactivity better than suffering for a few reasons. Um, one of them is that with uh, when we, when we uh, think of reactivity, it's really pointing to two forms of reactivity. And these are, this is really the problem, is that of the fact that we grasp, but we also push away. We grasp compulsively and we push away compulsively. In other words, we can't, rest in an open way with present experience. And, this is, and we could say that this is, uh, in a certain sense, suffering, that, we, that there's actually a, an unease with the present moment. But I, I like reactivity because it points to the two forms that it takes, both the grasping and the pushing away. In the Four Noble Truths, there's only the identification and the grasping. Right? So I like it for that. I also like it... Because in English, um, pain and suffering are um, often synonymous. And when we translate it as suffering, it makes it sound like the aim of practice is to get rid of the unpleasant. And that's not it at all, right? If you think, remember the teaching of the two arrows from a few nights ago? That sense that we, the first arrow we could call pain or the presence of the unpleasant and it's that shooting of the second arrow which is the problem. The fact that the first arrow is there is just the way life is sometimes. But the fact that we react, in other words, that we shoot the second arrow, that's the problem. And we could distinguish it in English and say the first arrow is pain and the second arrow is suffering and give it a kind of technical definition, right? But I like reactivity because we don't get into that ambiguity, which you'll find a lot, even in Buddhist, a lot of teachings. You'll find people don't distinguish those so clearly. But it seems like, for me, the only way that we can make sense of the intention to have the end of dukkha is if it's reactivity. We're not looking for the end of the unpleasant. You know, the Buddha had plenty of unpleasant experiences. You know, as, as do we all. And so, I like reactivity in that sense. In a simple way, I think this, uh, this teaching about transforming reactivity can be, can be expressed really in a simple way. I, I like to talk about this core teaching as becoming responsive rather than reactive. And being responsive points to a quality of freedom. We're not compulsively needing to react. It's that sense of appropriate response. This is the point of our practice in every moment over time to be able to move from reactivity to being able to respond out of freedom rather than being driven to react. I like, this is, For me, this is a very simple, ordinary English way to understand the Four Noble Truths. That's what it's about. Becoming responsive, responsive in the heart, responsive in the mind, responsive in the body. To be able to have the responsiveness of metta when something difficult happens. I want to say a word about the basic dynamic of reactivity and then talk about some ways that we can work with reactivity. There's a teaching um, that also was one of the early teachings of the Buddha called dependent origination. And many of you, how many of you know that teaching? Taken to be the fruit of his awakening experience. And at the core of that teaching is a very simple model of how reactivity works. And it goes like this In every moment of experience, there's a kind of contact of our senses and in, in Buddhist psychology the mind is understood as a sixth sense there is a uh, contact of the senses with the object. It could be uh, the con- the, I'm, I have contact with uh, pleasant sensations in my body unpleasant sensations or I see a tree or I hear something that every moment there's some kind of contact with an object, whether internal or external. So by object, I don't mean something external. I mean something like as in the way we talk in the morning where we talk about the primary object being the breath or something like that. So it's really, really, the, it's really like the experiencer and an object. And on the basis of that contact, there arises what is called feeling tone, which is taken to be there in every moment. And this is the sense of either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. With every moment of experience, we see a tree, we have an internal sensation, we have a thought. There's some uh, feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Some psychologists have said about 98% of our experience is neutral. (laughs) We spend a lot of time with that other 2%. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of preoccupation, talk shows, television dramas. It's about the 2%. Um, And what happens on this understanding is that when we're not mindful, we're not aware of something pleasant arising, we will tend to grasp after it. I have a pleasant experience in my body, and we say I'll have more of that. Or you know, we can watch, uh, especially children, but adults too, eating something pleasant. You know, we we all know we eat. We have a pleasant taste in the mouth, and the fork is moving before the chewing has finished. <laughs> right? That is um, the activation after feeling tone. <laughs> right? And so. The, when we are not aware of a pleasant feeling tone, we will tend to want and then grasp. And that it can be automatic, can happen really quickly. Sometimes it, it's extended over time, depending on the kind of contact. And then in a parallel way, when we are um, not aware, not mindful of the unpleasant, what do we do? We'll tend to push it away. Right? We know that from meditation, from Unpleasant sensations will tend to react. It could be also seen as shooting the second arrow. And so there's this this continual movement when we're not mindful of feeling tone from contact to feeling tone to wanting or not wanting to pushing away or grasping, right? And it happens automatically when we're not aware And when we have maybe underlying understandings that reaching after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant will make me happy. The um, teacher in the Tibetan tradition, uh, Reggie Ray, some of you may know his work, he says the entire spiritual path occurs between contact and grasping or pushing away, the entire path. And so it's a very beautiful model that can really help us to focus and practice. I wanted to say just one, make one clarification before talking about some ways of working with reactivity. And that is that um, this sense that reactivity is about not being able to be with the present moment, pushing it away, or grasping, doesn't mean that we're supposed to somehow be passive with the present moment. We have to have the capacity to be receptive, but then on the basis of what occurs, we can be responsive. I think it's very important, for example, in terms of uh, social change, right? Because it's not about, oh, I'm just going to be with what is, right? I'm just going to be with what is. Uh, we could interpret an intention of non-reactivity as just being passive and not doing anything. And that's a misunderstanding because actually that receptivity and non-reactivity is a basis for skillful action. It's in the sense we would say Martin Luther King um, had a certain way that he was non-reactive about racism. You know, It's there. He sees it. It's there. And there's a certain level just of seeing it. But there's also a deep response. Actually based on a whole approach which is non-reactive. So that uh, strong response, actually, the strong response that's skillful, actually I think depends on non-reactivity. A lot more I could say about that. But I wanted just to make that point because it's not about passivity, responsiveness. I think the word responsive points to that, but non-reactivity actually makes it possible for us to respond skillfully. So I've had some fun, and I've drawn up 10 ways of working with reactivity. (laughs) With the remaining time, I'll have to go through them quickly. (laughs) But I thought, and this is really, how do we work practically with reactivity? How do we, how do we um, uh, develop the ability to be skillful when we're reactive? And in a way, we've been giving instructions on this the whole time of the retreat. And a big part of our practice is learning to be more skillful with reactivity. So a few words here. And I think I'll primarily focus on our own inner practice at the retreat. We also we also could say a lot, or I could say a lot, about what non-reactivity means interpersonally, and what it means in the collective situation. Because actually, I think that, my, from my own experience, I think the work of people like Gandhi and King is actually about non-reactivity. The whole tr- these traditions of nonviolence are really about saying we have received violence, we will not pass on the violence, but we will respond. And so there's something very deep about, it's, it's really a kind of non-reactivity, it's saying the reactivity ends here, we will respond, you know, and King talked about love, right? Responding out of love. This is a very deep calling, right? This is not easy, but I, I wanted to make the connection because I think the teaching is very similar could interpret those teachings as teaching about the two arrows or about non-reactivity. So, number one. I'll go through these quickly and <clears throat> if I don't get through them all, I'll post the missing ones. <laughs> okay. But I got excited. I actually had to limit it to ten. I had more. <laughs> really. <laughs> so, okay. Number one. And I'll go through these quickly. Number one we cultivate non-reactivity in order to study and transform reactivity. So we cultivate mindfulness. Mindfulness of anger is not angry. Right? It's like on the level of the brain, I think John was saying this, on the level of the brain, there's the old habit pattern. When we bring in mindfulness, we're actually starting a different pattern. We're intervening and creating new neural pathways. And that's why we can say that mindfulness of anger is not angry. Mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive. And this, this is transformative. And we develop the other practices, the metta. Metta is about the non-reactivity of the heart. We develop those qualities. We, if we went further, we would learn how to be skillful with speech and conflict and... Um, developing way which, which is bringing in more complexity and saying how can we extend the teachings into these realms I've been very personally interested and in sometimes teach in those areas very important um, really an extension of what we're doing just with that moment of simple reactivity here on the cushion or on the chair number two we study and learn about Our own main forms of reactivity. It's even helpful to take notes. Here are my like, uh, John was saying, or maybe Heather. I don't think it was me. (laughs) (laughs) I think Heather. We 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 have our we have our we look for our top three. You know, this was in the in the labeling process. We look for our top three. Similarly, we can say, what are my top four and four. top four or top five forms of reactivity. And again, this isn't in our advertising material, but what's really invited is to become experts and connoisseurs of our own reactivity. Sound good? No. (laughs) But it's what we need to do, right? And, and, that, and actually the reason we could say that we might have said no is that if we were only doing that, it's too much. That's why we need to hang out a certain amount of the time with the metta, with where the kind heart is there, with beauty, even with pleasure. I think that's why our meals are as they are. Wasn't that garlic spread good? How many liked that garlic? No. <laughs> okay, okay. So we really, we we study how they are and this involves sometimes actually going into the reactivity which isn't always easy. What's it like in the body? What's it like in the mind? What are the main narratives going on? What's the emotional tone? What does the judgmental mind feel like? Can I go into fear? Not so easy, right? I had a friend who was talking to me about a a week or ten days ago and saying that when she was diagnosed with cancer at age 40, having two kids, wonderful career, a husband, of course she was terrified. And she said at a certain point she needed to go into the fear. I don't know if she needed to, but she said she did it at a certain point, and it actually freed her up. The fear wasn't there in the same way. And she actually, it it brought her uh, joy. She could actually contact joy rather than being paralyzed by the fear. And now the cancer is gone. So sometimes we have to, or we choose to go into that, you know, we have to have the resources to do that. Related to that, uh, this is sort of a a sub-point. It's very helpful to know the degree of difficulty of the reactivity. And the ones that we can go into, we either have to have an enormous amount of good resources uh, or we say, well, we can more easily go into the fours through the sevens or eights on a scale of 10, and the nines or tens may be too much, right? So that's good to know. Part of working with reactivity is know the level of um, intensity of the reactivity and use the appropriate resources or have the appropriate response bending on that level. So very good to do if you're feeling reactive or a little lost saying, where does it stand one to 10? And and that can give you a sense you need, typically when it's nine or 10, what we would do would actually be, it would be too hard to be mindful. So we would actually try to shift out of it try to move to greater balance. Maybe we would take a walk, do metta, um, talk to someone if we were at home, maybe do something physical, be with beauty, and so forth. Number three is uh, we can work with the practice around uh, vedana. vedana. Vedana is the word for feeling tone that I gave, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We can actively practice, and this is something that one can do in the sittings and the walkings, that we can uh, really look at that sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And I wanna give just two quick ways of doing that. One is to really look for when pleasant or unpleasant is strong, okay? Notice that it's strong, and then study what happens. Be, what does pleasant feel like? What does unpleasant feel like? Can I feel tendencies of some kind towards want grasping, wanting and grasping with the unpleasant? Sometimes easier to study when there's something unpleasant. Know that it's unpleasant and see, um, see what happens. Of course, see, we can study, it would be predictable that with the unpleasant we would start to push away in some way through tensing, through words, through thoughts, and so forth. And we can study that. We can really look carefully, you know. And when we can actually be aware of the pleasant or the unpleasant especially, we often don't go to the reactivity. One friend of mine, uh, quite a few years ago, Whenever something was said by someone, including me, that felt quite unpleasant, you know, maybe felt judgmental or something, she would say, ouch. And at first I thought it was kind of California cute. But in reality, it's actually based on the, this teaching, isn't it? She's saying ouch, which means that's hard, that's unpleasant. And it's actually, she's, it helps her not to go to reactivity and helps the other person to know that didn't feel good without judging the person. Why did you do that, etc. Very interesting. And It's now, I think, I know it's used in um, some group, quite a lot of groups, right? Um, very interesting. A second way to work with feeling tone is to just really look at feeling tone moment to moment, maybe for a short time, maybe three minutes. Notice it, what's it like right now? Notice the feeling tone, moment to moment, because the teaching is that every moment comes with feeling tone. You can do this in the dining hall over a meal. Work with feeling tone. Pleasant. How can I subtly have seconds without looking like... <laughs> but, you know, watch the thoughts, <laughs> right? So a fourth is... Similar. And this is working actually with the Four Noble Truths. And this would be when there's reactivity, the First Noble Truth would say, let me study it. Let me feel what reactivity is like. Okay? Let me be with it. First Noble Truth. Number two, is there some way that I'm pushing away or grasping? And feel what that's like. Number two. Number three, is there a way that I can let go of the grasping? or the pushing away and just relax with what's happening. Just be there. That's the equivalent of the third noble truth. And then fourth, what helps me to do that? Maybe I have to reflect on something. It's a very powerful um, practice. It was actually one of my first practices. My first teacher was Joseph Goldstein. And early on in my practice, he gave me uh, this instruction. If there's suffering, where's the grasping? You can translate with the language I've used. If there's reactivity, where's the grasping or pushing away? So if there's suffering, where's the grasping? I worked with that for several years in daily life, in retreat. You can take that. I'm going to give you a few. See if one or two resonate with you that you might like to do in the practice here because they're wonderful. And this is, right, again, right at the core of our practice. Uh, number five. Number five. In reactivity, we should tend to shoot the second arrow. Try not to shoot it. (laughs) Really crucial. Notice yourself, and again, by second arrow, I mean second or third or fourth or 17th or 23rd or 75th arrow. And so try to see when something difficult happens that, in some ways, we're making something difficult more difficult, right? And notice that, especially with thoughts, you know, like that are negative thoughts or judgmental thoughts or catastrophizing thoughts. Watch them. Notice them, be aware of them, and make an intention not to go there. Really crucial practice. You know, it's, it, when, when I work one-on-one with people in daily life, this is the single most common guidance that I give. Something difficult has happened, watch your shooting at the second arrow. It goes a very, very long way to work with that. The sixth is a little more subtle that in <clears throat> most forms of reactivity, Um, there can be um, some noticing her discernment, her intelligence, and we somehow need to separate that out from the reactivity. You can see this with a few things like judgmental mind. I may be having a difficult experience with my boss, and I may say, that boss is really um, not a good listener. And I might get really judgmental and reactive about it, but there can be a kernel of truth there how do i and yet the kernel of truth gets caught up with reactivity and becomes what we call judgmental how can i keep that uh, kernel of truth and work through the reactivity it's not so easy it's like heather and i often teach retreats on transforming the judgmental mind this is one of the core understandings that can help us work with that at, at many different levels. You could see the same thing in a lot of political situations. We can say, oh, that's wrong. That's unjust. And we can be very reactive, which will tend to make things more difficult and poison them. How can we preserve the insight and work through the reactivity? And then we use the insight for the purposes of compassionate action with the boss or with the social situation. It's not easy, right? But it's helpful to know that, 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 that often in reactivity, it can hold something that actually is quite positive. Probably could give a whole talk on that because that's, that's an important point, but it's subtle, isn't it? How do we work with that? The seventh... When we're reactive, we often get caught in papancha or mental proliferation. Again, this is where we, one of the ways that we shoot the second arrow, we engage in scary narratives or very positive narratives or catastrophizing. We go far away from the reality of things. This is what we do when we're reactive. You can see this a lot in all the discourse, of a public nature in the last weeks or months, right? People go from a difficult experience, a reactive, and all of a sudden there's a generalization about all Muslims, right? That is called papancha. Yet it's, and, and, and it's going way beyond the actual data her experience, right? And we do that when we're reactive. We know that, don't we? We go way far away. And so actually what peacemakers do is they bring the parties away from their stories and down to the lived experience. This was hard. This was painful. Thich Nodhan says, a peacemaker brings the suffering of one side to the other side and the suffering of the other side to the first side. We have to go, we have to not be so caught in all the views, narratives, and so forth. This is from uh, James Baldwin. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone they will be forced to deal with pain. Number eight, in reactivity we are not in our hearts and so we learn in reactivity when, when there's reactivity we learn how to come back more to our hearts. Interpersonally, when there's reactivity, there's rarely empathy. There's rarely a and compassion and empathy in the heart. When we're <clears throat> judgmental towards ourselves, we're really out of our own hearts. This is why in all of this, the development of the heart practices is so crucial. You know, um, and that uh, really developing further in metta, and actually, if we're working a lot with reactivity, it actually is really crucial, like I said this earlier, to be with the heart practices, to be with beauty, to be with that which grounds us and calms us and then lets us have the energy to then work with the, diff- with the reactivity. With, so if there's a lot of that happening in one's practice here, it's very good to um, be with the, the kind heart as much as it's accessible and be with beauty. And so we can work with the various practices, metta, or compassion, or forgiveness, or gratitude, or empathy. Mm-hmm. And the ninth is, in, when we're reactive, we're really lost and on automatic And we learn <clears throat> how to come back from being lost. Part of the repertoire of working with reactivity is to have a bunch of ways that we say, Oh, I'm lost. How do I come back to balance? You can even write them on your wrist, mm-hmm. or on your hand, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Or I have a little card, my mm-hmm. repertoire of rebalancing from reactivity mm-hmm. methods, mm-hmm. right? And to ha- and, but to really, it's, um, it's important to really have a sense of that and then to uh, use them. So again, it could be the heart practice or it could be taking a walk or it could be, doing something physical. At home it could be getting out of the house or doing, having exercise or being with beauty or being with a friend or being, listening to a Dharma talk, reading, you know right there that seven or eight. We, we, and to know which work for me really, really crucial. And then the last that I'm having here is that reactivity is ultimately driven, we saw this at the beginning, by ignorance and so we also make a commitment to work with the deeper roots of our own ignorance. And I was talking about those as threefold, as personal, as social, and as universal. It's a lot, right? You know, I think really coming to freedom um, its not a weekend activity. <laughs> or how should I say, it's not done simply in a weekend. Right? Towards, um, One cartoon shows two monks together and it says, I think this takes a while. We have been urged to pack a lunch. (laughs) 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 So we work to, you know, at the right time we look into the personal conditioning. And then for all of us there are ways we can keep going deeper in that. Sometimes we need outside resources to work with a psychologist or to some of us if there's trauma in our background sometimes we have to really focus there and work with that. And we work with the social conditioning. Again, not always so easy or so obvious how to do that but it's there you know and to really to really look deeply and then we work with these three characteristics and I've outlined how to work with dukkha. We could do this we could have the same or not the same but a parallel talk with impermanence or with looking into self and then we start to open more and more to non-reactivity and I really want to encourage you to enjoy and be able to notice when you're non-reactive feel what it's like what's it like in the body and we're all having many many probably hundreds thousands of moments of non-reactivity every day what's it like when I'm just mindful I'm noticing I'm non-reactive, maybe it doesn't feel very dramatic but it's actually quite powerful to tune in when I'm non-reactive, when I'm just noticing something clearly. It's happening a lot more than we (coughs) may believe, you know. And then we can begin to also move into the deeper expressions of non-reactivity which is pointing to this, the depths of the freedom that is possible. John pointed in some ways this morning to this vast open awareness which is possible. A way of being, a kind of awareness which is non-reactive and can be with whatever arises increasingly. This is from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. Those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening, give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging. They are luminous and completely liberated in this life. We have that same quality of non-reactivity and metta. This is from the metta-sutta. So with a boundless heart, listen for the quality of non-reactivity. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. And we touch that. In certain a lot of the practice, sometimes I think that, you know, awakening is sometimes shrouded in mystery. I think awakening is primarily... Um, a matter of taking the moments in which we're non-reactive, peaceful, seeing clearly, which we all have, and just having a lot more of them. So it's not bringing in something that you don't know. It's right there for you. But it's a matter of letting it get larger, letting it get more stabilized. And for that we need practice and we need support. But it's not something inherently mysterious. And sometimes I almost think that there's, there's almost a quantitative aspect to it, you know, where it's just a, a certain increase and quantity turns into quality, qualitative difference. Here just a few more readings to finish. This is a one expression of that non-reactivity from Achan Cha, one of the great teachers of our lineage. And here you can hear his metaphor, it's called Take the One Seat, and it's a metaphor for non-reactivity. Just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and see who comes to call. (laughs) You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptation and stories imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this wisdom and understanding will come. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe. And mental states and emotional states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for a short period or a longer period. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. (laughs) But do not give up your seat. (laughs) It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake. The visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can they come back? Speak with them here and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. just to close with one line this is from the Buddha I have taught one thing and one thing only dukkha and the cessation of dukkha thank you for your kind attention and may one or more of these practices and suggestions resonate and be something you can explore for the rest of the retreat in part so that's my hope (laughs) thank you very much and we'll have now uh, about 20 minutes walking and also time to fill out those uh, sheets thank you